Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, when I say the word dude, what comes to mind? <laughs> well, um, let's see. I would have to say probably like valley girls speak, like dude, I can't believe you just did that. Or (laughs) dude, where's my car? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I love saying the word dude personally. It's definitely part of my slang vocabulary. I like calling my girlfriends dude. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, at least prior to this episode, dude was absolutely epitomized by the dude. Jeff Bridges' character in the 1998 film, The Big Lebowski, you know, he's a stoner. He basically lives in a bathrobe and sweatpants. He has little to no care in the world until this, you know, giant controversy surrounding a rug that, quote, really tied the room together, turns his chill world upside down. (laughs) (laughs) And needless to say, dress listeners, both April and I have the same response to you, I'm sure, as to what a quote-unquote dude is. Because today, dude is really slang for guy, kind of similar to bro. Yeah, because it has associations with surfer hippie stoner culture, thanks in part to its popular use in film and TV from the 70s and 80s and onwards. But historically, it had very different connotations and very, very fashionable connotations at that. And we know what you might be thinking, dress listeners. What exactly does quote-unquote dude have to do with fashion? Well, we were thrilled to discover the term actually has everything to do with fashion. I mean, everything. And when we say fashion, we mean fashion. So, so much fashion is coming your way on this week's investigation into the inner sanctums of dudum. And yes, that is a historically accurate term. And there's so much fashion that it required two episodes. And it's not just any fashion either, dress listeners, but men's fashion at that. And we actually don't have a lot of episodes in our repertoire dedicated to fashionable young men. So you really are in for a treat. Lots of dapper and dashing gents, or we should say dudes, coming your way. You have heard us talk a lot about how society has policed and satirized women's fashion historically, but less about the male peers who, in the early 19th century, according to John Flugel's famous great male renunciation theory, quote, abandoned his claim to be considered beautiful and henceforth aimed at being only useful. Yeah, and as the theory goes with quote-unquote rational men's universal adoption of the dark-colored suit during this period, the ornamentation and expressive side of fashion was thereafter left to women, the so-called irrational sex. That all being said, April, Flugel had clearly never met a dude. (laughs) No, he had not. And actually, we have one very specific dude to thank for inspiring today's episode. A dude who was so famous for what he wore that the popular press christened him the king of the dudes. And quite frankly, we might never have discovered the specific dude and dude fashion history in general had it not been for this year's Met Gala and the actor Emma Corrin, star of the most recent season of The Crown. They played Princess Diana. 
Emma walked the red carpet wearing a somewhat whimsical take on turn-of-the-century menswear, donning a custom Miu Miu ensemble that consisted of an oversized double-breasted plaid coat with giant buttons worn over a black lapeled double-breasted vest and shorts number. And the outfit was accessorized with antique Cartier jewels, including a 1913 pocket watch, a 1938 brooch, and 1934 earrings, and topped with a foot-high Worth and Worth top hat. Yeah, and then kind of, you know, hidden was a phrase written in black cursive on a grosgrained ribbon that was sewn into the coat's lining. And on that ribbon was the phrase, the king of the dudes. And it was only after Googling that phrase out of sheer curiosity that we gained full appreciation for just how spot on the gala's Gilded Age theme Emma's outfit was and really how clever it was. Because it turns out that Emma, and we should also say Miu Miu and Emma's stylist, Harry Lambert, who all collaborated to make this happen, while they were all paying homage to one of the era's most fashion-forward and fashion-obsessed figures, and that is a New York socialite by the name of Evander Barry Wall. Emma's look was based on a look Evander was wearing in an illustration of him from the 1880s. Well, we had never heard of Evander prior, we were quick to discover that our fashionable new friend, a self-described man about town, was an active participant in the festivities of Gilded Age America, the latter half of the 19th century, early 20th century, which witnessed the rise of an incredibly, albeit small, wealthy upper class. And let's just acknowledge here the fact that many of these titans of industry that we're talking about built these fortunes literally on the backs of enslaved immigrant and other laboring populations. Yeah. And something we actually talked about because some people got really creative with their looks for the Gilded Age theme in reference to this particular topic. And we talked about that on our Met Gala episode. So if you're interested in that, check it out. So Evander himself was born on January 14th, 1861 in New York City to parents Charles and Elizabeth Wall. And his grandfather was the owner of a successful rope-making business of all things. And it was he who had the most sartorial influence on the young Evander's life. In the first chapter of his memoir, Neither Pest Nor Puritan, and in a chapter entitled Horses and Clothes, as we will learn, he (laughs) loved both... (laughs) Evander reflects on his early childhood and his kind-hearted grandfather from whom he inherited his appreciation for being well-dressed and the belief that clothing was an expression of one's character. He writes, quote, No doubt I got from him my sense that clothes and character should accord. His did. I never saw him clothed other than in lavender trousers strapped under patent leather boots, frock coat with velvet collar, stock tie, and silk hat. Evander was just 18 years old when he inherited his father's and grandfather's reported $2 million fortune, and he went about spending all of it. (laughs) He engrossed himself in the titillating world of 1880s New York, enjoying all the booze, food, theater, horse racing, fancy dress balls, and parties that the period had to offer. And his memoir provides a fascinating glimpse into a New York City that looked very different from today. It was a time, for instance, when 14th Street was the center of all happening things. A world traveler, he writes of whining and dining with the who's who of American and European society. So courtesans and stage stars, industry magnates, politicians, ambassadors, future presidents, kings. He is what one might call a name dropper, April. (laughs) And he writes, quote, my idea was that life was worth enjoying. And he did it all dressed listeners with a dedication to being impeccably well-dressed. 
And where today we might call him a Gilded Age playboy of sorts, the popular press of the period was entirely focused almost exclusively on what he wore, dubbing him not just a dude, but king of the dudes. And let's just say this was not meant to be a compliment. And we are going to learn a lot more about Evander. But first, what exactly does dude have to do with fashion, (laughs) right? Well, in a nutshell, the term was used mockingly to describe a subculture of fashion-obsessed young men akin to dandies or fops. So men who really cared about their appearance and personal dress above and beyond the status quo. And I'm curious, etymologically speaking, how the word dude kind of made this transition and meaning from meaning dandy to kind of now meaning, quote-unquote, bro. But that query is outside the scope of today's podcast. And that may be, but an investigation into the origins of the word are not. And dress listeners, you know that we love a good hunt for the origin of a word on dress. Love it. My (laughs) favorite thing. It is. It's so much fun. And you may remember we've done past episodes on the origins of silhouette, leotard, flapper, to name a few. However, in the case of the word dude, inquiring minds had actually already done a lot of the research for us. In fact, Barry Popick and Gerald Cohen and their colleagues reportedly spent a decade combing over 19th century periodicals to discover the origin of the word. The findings were then published in 2013 in a 129-page article in Cohen's journal, Comments on Etymology. And what Barry and Gerald discovered might just surprise you. I mean, it certainly surprised us because it leads to the familiar childhood nursery rhyme of all things, Yankee Doodle Dandy. (laughs) So Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. April, I don't know about you, but I had never previously known the origins of this song, much less considered its fashionable connotations. Not that at first glance they are glaringly obvious, but still. They are definitely not obvious, you know. So the word quote-unquote doodle first appeared in the English language in the 17th century, derived from lower German words meaning fool and also one who plays music badly. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. So from its very origins, it appears to have been a mocking term, and it was certainly used in that same way, mockingly, in an 18th century version of this hymn, Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was sung by British officers during the American Revolutionary War. And the song was intended as an insult to the rebellious Americans that they were fighting against. So let's unpack that a bit further, shall we? Why was this an insult? Well, We have Yankee, which was a term for the inhabitants of the British colony of New England in America. So first recorded in the 1760s. Then we have doodle translating to fool or simpleton. And then we have dandy. So although the term dandy is most often associated with the 19th century and men like most famously Beau Brummel, who were devoted to a life of high style and affectation, as this song shows, it was actually in use as early as the 1770s. And at the very least implies an association with wanting to look dapper and dashing. And April, this was of course achieved by... Sticking a feather feather in his hat and calling it macaroni. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, your favorite pasta dress listeners is also a fashion-related term. Historian Kate Hallman defines the macaroni as referring to both a, quote, particular short-lived fashion for men in the early 1700s and to a certain kind of man. 
often derisive, the term applied to elaborately powdered, ruffled, and corseted men of fashion, successors to the Restoration era fops and predecessors to the 19th century dandy, end quote. And fop, there is another fashion term you do not hear much of today. And much like doodle, fop was first synonymous with fool, first recorded use in 1440. And the Oxford English Dictionary tells us that by 1672, it had also taken on a fashion-related definition as, quote, one who is foolishly attentive to and vain of his appearance, dress, or manners. So again, not meant to be a compliment. In particular, it was applied to a subculture of white British bourgeoisie, appearance-obsessed young men who traveled across Europe in the latter half of the 18th century as part of the so-called grand tour tradition, a sort of coming-of-age uh, rite of passage for upper-class young men. And the story goes that it was on these trips that these travelers took a liking for the Italian pasta macaroni. The term would soon become their nickname, given to them by those seeking to make jest of the young men's dress and affectations. As was the case with a lot of fashion of this period, these young men were the subject of much satire. Which is actually fascinating when you consider that for upper-class men across Europe in the 18th century, participating in the luxuries and ornamentation of fashion was very much socially acceptable. So the macaronis must really have outdone themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Turning up that volume. Yes. Yeah. And that's evidenced in numerous satirical plays produced in the 70s and 80s, poking fun at their attire. So think, you know, three-foot-high wigs with a tiny hat perched on top, giant cravats, and overflowing floral boutonnieres. And much like the creators of these satirical prints, the British fighting in the American Revolution intended the song Yankee Doodle Dandy to similarly mock their American counterparts. It implied that the only way the impoverished colonists could afford to imitate British macaronis was by sticking a few feathers in their cap for adornment. So... The macaroni subculture is actually a fascinating topic that absolutely deserves its own episode, preferably with the reigning expert on the topic, historian Peter McNeil, who has studied it in relationship to queer identity, which is, of course, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and while investigating the sexual preferences of dude culture is perhaps outside the reach of this podcast today, it would actually be a really fascinating topic for a scholar to take a deep dive into. So George Chauncey, I'm looking at you. Um, Chauncey, of course, uh, wrote the award-winning groundbreaking book, Gay New York, which came out in 1994 and remains an invaluable and defining touchstone for queer studies. And he doesn't actually mention dudes in the book, but I would be curious if there were any connections. Dude King Evander Barry Wall was a dear friend of Oscar Wilde, just saying. And regardless, there's definitely a commentary there on how transgressive the dude's engagement with this, you know, feminine sphere of fashion was. And this is certainly one of the reasons dudes made the public and the press so incredibly uncomfortable. And we're going to hear a lot more about that. More on dude fashion coming your way after a brief word from our sponsors. Welcome back. So in the 18th century, we have the Yankee Doodle Dandy, and by 1883, so 100 years or so later, we have the Dude. In fact, in 1883, that was the year when the so-called Dude craze began in New York City. And this is according to Barry Popick, who, as you may remember, was one of the researchers on the decade-long Dude Origin Discovery Project. 
As it turns out, Barry is an expert etymologist, contributed to not just Cohen's comments on etymology, but also to, among many other publications, the Oxford English Dictionary. And according to his website, barrypoppick.com, he is also a recognized expert on the origins of the following words. Big Apple, Windy City, Hot Dog, Hamburger, and of course, for today's intents and purposes, Dude. So again, he traced the term's origins to 1883 and specifically to a poem that was published on January 14th of that year in the New York World newspaper that he says started it all. And this playful poem is entitled The True Origin and History of the Dude. And we present an abridged version for your pleasure here. Long ago in ages crude, before there was a modem, oh, there lived a bird they called a dude, resembling much the dodo. Its stupid airs and vanity made other birds explode, so they christened it in charity, first cousin to the dodo. It plumed itself in foreign plumes and thought home products no o, for idiocy it ranked with loons and hence surpassed the dodo. Not lately in this hemisphere... Through some amalgamation, a flock of dudes I greatly fear are added to our nation. Their features first, I would explain, are of the washed-out order, mild dissipation, feeble brain, with cigarette smoke border. Their feathers or their brow they bang, their cheek resembles leather, their style inclusive is a slang, the strike me with a feather. Their father's cuff supports a hat, the head just seen between them, a coachman's riding coat at that envelops and screens them. Save just below the coat is seen where muscles ought to be, sir. A pair of pipe stems cased in green, skin tight, and half-mast high, sir. <laughs> to this, please add a pointed shoe, verandas built around it. A necktie, either white or blue, safe me if you doubt it. <laughs> add, someone went to a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. After sharing this poem, Barry then presents us with a series of other articles that followed in its wake almost immediately, all of which to attest to the term's more widespread adoption and its satirical application to a newly arrived, fashion-obsessed subculture of young men. Reads the New York Mirror on February 24th, 1883, quote, During the past few days, a new and valuable addition has been made to the slang vocabulary of the period. We refer to the term dude, and here it's spelled D-O-O-D. For a correct definition of the expression, the anxious inquirer has only to turn to the tight-trousered, brief-coated, eye-glassed, fancy-vested, sharp-toed, shod, vapid youth who abounds in the metropolis at present. He is a dude. Where or how the name originated, we cannot say. In April of the same year, the Brooklyn Daily Times commented, our language has been enriched by a new word, the dude, and this is spelled in our familiar spelling. The article to which the name applies is not new, however. It is an old thing in a new dress and a high collar. The dude, in short, is a fop, a little more lifeless, a little more stupid, a little more negative than the average fop, end quote. So it should be obvious by now that the dude, much like its 17th and 18th century antecedent fop, was intended to be a pejorative, a word expressing disdain for a group of men who were perceived as being concerned with their appearance to the point of excess, well beyond what society considered to be good and respectable taste. This association is encapsulated by the title of an April 1883 Chicago Tribune article, which reads, The Genus Dude, in all of his manifestations of gorgeous idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and there is another page-long article that ran that same year in the Boston Globe entitled Dudeology, What the Dude Is and What It Is Doing in This World. And I just want you to notice here the use of the term it. Numerous articles refer to dudes as some sort of new specimen or creature to study and dissect. And perhaps this is a reflection of a sort of post-Darwinian evolutionary theory world, because this was a hot topic at this time. But um, this particular journalist professed to have interviewed a number of prominent people. And I think this list of who these prominent people are is hilarious because it includes (laughs) a fashionable tailor. Okay, fine. Scientist. Yeah, cool. Bootmaker. An etymologist. A poet. A dog fancier. A political candidate a bartender, and finally the dudes themselves. <laughs> Prominent people, a.k.a. your bartender. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this is the point where we have to acknowledge that a lot of these articles, including this one, are no doubt written in jest or at the very least an exaggeration of facts. So, you know, something like 19th century clickbait, have you? So sensationalized stories that help to both create and then continuously satiate the fashion and gossip-hungry appetites of their readers. I mean, these articles abound, and it's not always easy to decipher fact from fiction. And I'm going to tell you an interesting story from my own experience, because at one point when writing these episodes, I literally spent three hours figuring out how to address a concerning article about a mass meeting of dudes that had assembled in 1887 in support of a lawyer named Delancey Nickel, who was running for attorney general in New York. And this article really painted the dudes as like vapid, class-obsessed egotists. They were shouting slogans such as, the common herd, he laughs to score, he is a gentleman, well-born. And it took me an embarrassingly long time to finally determine that this giant article was actually one giant joke. (laughs) <laughs> you actually texted me. She's, you were like, oh, I spent this amount of time and this article is actually complete satire. Yeah. And it wasn't like a respectable, you know, newspaper. Yeah. It's super interesting. And and you would think that names such as like Wooter Van Twiller Smith Smythe would have ticked me off. <laughs> <laughs> or the fact that dude supported the candidate because, quote, he was an authority on silk stockings, bathrobes, and embroidered flowered nightshirts. But alas, <laughs> even I can be fooled. Yeah, well, I mean, this brings up a really excellent point about source material, though. Um, you know, as as historians, we can't take our source material at face value. You have to really critically analyze and interrogate sometimes primary sources and obviously secondary sources with an eye for the time period in which it was written. You know, who was writing it? And um, were there any ingrained biases that they may have had and a whole host of other factors? And Despite the fallacies in many of these articles, they are still very helpful in establishing just how culturally relevant the dude had remained in popular culture for years after his first appearances in 1883. And I think it's safe to say, April, that historically it would seem that the public at large, or at the very least journalists at large, are just not appreciative of the experimental, excessive, and expressive sides of men's fashion. (laughs) And remember, dudes were directly challenging strict societal gender codes at the time that deemed any interest in fashion as a purely feminine pursuit. But let's not confuse this utter disdain for the dude as dismissal of their appeal or the public's lack of fascination with them. Because as mentioned, there are scores and scores of articles about the dude and dude subculture 
And in fact, a keyword search in the newspapers.com archives from 1883, when the dude craze began to 1899, so just a short like 17, 16 years, returned over 400,000 results. That's that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And after reading loads and loads of these articles about dudes, you can get a pretty general idea about where they came from and what a dude was. And while opinions can vary, there do appear to be some consistent qualifications across the board. More on that after a brief word from our sponsors. Welcome back. So what qualified a person as a dude? For one, it was pretty agreed upon that the age of dudes averaged 20s to early 30s, with one article citing 30 as the dude's best age. And speaking to the contradictory nature of sources, dudes either originated in Ivy League colleges or are never to be confused with college boys. It is agreed upon, however, that wherever dudes came from, they were a class all of their own. But not, it would appear, a class of their own making, because there is a pretty general consensus that dudes were young, rich, entitled white men living a life of leisure thanks to daddy's dime. And an 1883 article identified dudes as, quote, young men who are nothing but the sons of wealthy New Yorkers and who do nothing except imitate English stupidities, personal and social, try to be fast and blasé and assume to be superior, end quote. And this actually reflects another common commentary about dudes being that they affected aristocratic English manners and speech while putting on airs. This same article called Dudes Wannabe Gentlemen and among other things, nincompoops, which is actually a very (laughs) common term from this period, which I find hilarious. Uh, Depending on which article you read, dudes who traveled in groups either wreaked havoc wherever they went or were the welcome life of the party. Although I guess those two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I guess it would depend on where you were, exactly. But um, as is evidenced by an extremely lengthy August 1887 article entitled Dudes Held Up to View, which professes to tell readers everything they need to know about the still thriving dude subculture, quote, their clothes, their manners, their looks, and the way they carry their walking sticks, end quote, as well as dudes' favorite pastimes while in resort towns they frequent, Quote, they flirt with married ladies, drive stunning carts, order champagne by the pail after the ladies have retired, gamble like army officers, sleep till noon, and exercise like laborers to keep their waists slim, end quote. Oh, and of course, Cass, they do not call themselves dudes. As the same article reads, quote, there is nothing so hideous to a dude's ears as the word dude. To them, the word is reproachful and shocking. Fashion and the fashion self was really at the heart of dude subculture. And there are so many incredibly lengthy articles dedicated entirely to the scrutinization of dude wardrobes, reporting everything down to the smallest details. This particular article just mentioned paints a highly detailed portrait of the precision so-called quote-unquote, perfect dudes paid to dress. Quote, as seen in Saratoga, the perfect dudes, the rich ones who have taste, nearly all dress precisely alike in the evening. The rule is to have very loose trousers of dark cloth with a faint stripe, a cutaway frock coat buttoned to show only two or two and a half inches of a scarf of a delicate light shade decked with a small pin of dark stones such as rubies, garnets, or emeralds. And just a note, dudes loved their jewelry. (laughs) 
The article continues, quote, the collar is quite high and turned down in two broad bends in front. Patent leather gaiters, a high black hat or brown derby complete what is visible of his dress. They still carry big canes and all appear to have ordered their tailors to make their clothes so loose and big that their heads look small, end quote. <laughs> and apparently for daytime wear, the, quote, looseness of dress is carried to an extreme, end quote. Wearing huge light-colored and checkered suits with hats, but no gloves. And as to facial hair, quote, nothing more than a mustache is permissible on the face. So are these journalists dude fans? Not particularly, but you still get an idea of what qualified a dude despite the obvious bias. These are young men, educated, travel. They had money that they like to spend on having a good time together. And most importantly, on exploring the creative and expressive side of fashion. And the latter is actually the most defining feature and to journalists, their most egregious offense. And dress listeners, if you are thinking these descriptions sound a lot like our dear friend Evander, you are not wrong. An illustration of Evander from 1887 reveals him to be the spitting image of the aforementioned dude. In the illustration, he dons a short-brimmed hat, high collar with turned-down points, an eyeglass, watch chain, a cane, and a mustache. Evander wrote in defense of he and his friend's dress in his memoirs, quote, a high collar was simple to wear. It had a horsey military appearance. With it, I wore a tie a yard long, wound around twice and knotted into a bow. It seemed to suit me. As for plaids and such, we liked them for the race course. Women kept apart those days, and so men dressed to enliven the scene, aka they were dressing for each other. He concludes, Besides, in the evening, we all wore dark clothes. So in the daytime, we felt it might be a good idea to brighten things up a bit. And we want to take a moment and acknowledge that it can definitely be argued that the public's infatuation with Evander and his every move and article of dress is largely responsible for the dude's widespread infiltration of popular culture and parlance. In fact, it was very likely that Evander was the dude, the first dude, sorry, Jeff Bridges, that <laughs> set the fashionable standard by which many a dude would follow. And it is no coincidence, after all, that he was named King of the Dude just mere months after the first news articles reporting on the dude's arrival. Agreed. And as Glenn Falls, New York's post-star newspaper tells us in a July 30th, 1883 article, Evander's arrival that summer from Europe to the fashionable resort town of Saratoga meant, quote, every eye is out for a glimpse of E. Barry Wall, the king of the dudes, who arrived in the United States on Friday. He lounged about the piazza Friday night smoking La Ferme cigarettes in a suit of dark clothes, a white tie, and a stiff hat, a costume at once notable for elegance and inconspicuousity. Mr. Wall walks slightly Spanish, whatever that means. Um, perhaps <laughs> a nuance that the post-star readers would have understood at the time that's slightly lost to us today, but it's probably like some sort of like a swagger, swagger yeah. <laughs> or a little bit of an affectation. And as another article from October of that same year tells us, quote, the papers poked no end of fun at him, calling him the king of the dudes, end quote. Needless to say, the moniker stuck, and so did Evander, and his sartorial escapades are what legends are made of. 
An article from 1885 reads, the dudes flocked in crowds all day to pay homage to their sovereign and listen to the latest news from England and admire the latest thing in waistcoat. Another (laughs) article from that same year says, Mr. Wall's happiest moments are when he is astonishing a gaping crowd by his attire. Just to give them something to wonder at, he will change his costume three or four times an hour. When conscious that he's being pointed out as the bow of the fashion plates, he will excuse himself from his friends for a space of five or 10 minutes minutes to return in a spick and span outfit of an entirely different design. The transformations in dress are made by two valets who are always on duty in his apartment to strip and rehabilitate him as they would a dummy model in a millinery store. The fellow is not bad at heart, as liberal as a profligate prince, and nobody's fool by any means. And let's not forget that he reportedly owned over 500 pairs of trousers and one suit for every day of the year. And he famously had matching collars made for himself and his dog. Okay, I can kind of get down with that, just (laughs) saying. You know, but then, of course, there is also Evander's nationally publicized battle to maintain his royal dude status, all the while dodging court appearances for unpaid tailor bills. The intrigue, the suspense. (laughs) But just listeners, you'll just have to hold your clothes horses and wait for Thursday's episode to learn all about it. We have lots more dude fashion coming your way. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider channeling the dudes of fashion in your clothing next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.